Well, good evening. Welcome tonight. We're glad that you're here, and welcome to the final 48 verses of Revelation. Not all tonight, but we're starting the final 48 verses of Revelation. It's good to see all of you. Welcome those of you joining us online as well. We always have a good group joining us on Wednesday nights uh, uh, online, studying God's Word with us. And wherever you are and however you may be joining us, we welcome uh, each of you tonight. One other note I want to mention before we start, uh, it's budget time uh, at First Baptist Church. We begin our new budget year October 1st, so we're getting our budget ready and we'll be, uh, we have presented it to you. You can go online and see it or you can see it, uh, hard copies we have out here. But next Wednesday night will be our town hall meeting. If you have any questions about it or comments about the budget, you can next Wednesday night as soon as our Bible study is over at 715, go to room 281 and we'll be having our town hall budget meeting at that time. Then we'll vote on September 25th for our new budget for the next year. But you'll see all the details online or you can pick up copies of that as well. Someone grab our door back here for us, if we will, so we can pray and we'll get started. Let's pray together. Father, thank you tonight for the opportunity to study your word together. Thank you, Father, for how you've given us your infallible word that we can study it, learn from it, grow by it. And God, we just thank you for how you've given your word to us. And I pray tonight the Holy Spirit will be our teacher as we look at the passages and look at Revelation. God, thank you for revealing to us what you've revealed. Not everything that we want to know, but everything that we need to know. And we're thankful for that tonight. God bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, Revelation chapter 21 tonight. We'll look at the first five verses and uh, hope you have your ESV with you. Uh, and if not, you're some kind of device where you can follow along. Much better, I think, when you follow along and see the Scripture passages there and what we're talking about phrase by phrase, word by word. So we'll look at the first five verses of Revelation 21 tonight. Look at letter A on your outline, where we are. I always like to keep our study time in context. So I want to remind you again where we are and how we got here. John, of course, was on the island of Patmos around 90 AD, about 60 years after Jesus ascended back to heaven. He was banished out there for preaching the gospel. Uh, he, he was in the Spirit by himself on the Lord's Day whenever God gave him the revelation. So the book of Revelation is known as the revelation of John. Uh, and so it's called, or called the revelation. Of course, the word revelation uh, comes from the Greek word apocalypsis. We get the word apocalypse from it. It means to unveil. It does not mean catastrophic. It does not mean end times. The word apocalypse means an unveiling. Something that was previously hidden has now been made known. So that's what the book of Revelation is about, an unveiling of the last days. John wrote this letter to the seven churches of Asia Minor. If you look at them, they're in a circular pattern from where he was writing uh, and where he was sending it to. And then we, we're seeing the Revelation, what John saw and what he recorded in the Revelation. He saw the throne room of heaven to begin with. He saw the scroll that no one could open. Jesus was the only one worthy to open the scroll. He opened the scroll, and with the opening of that scroll in heaven, in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, there is a seven-year period of tribulation that begins. And there are seven seal judgments, there are seven trumpets, there are seven bowl judgments that all follow, all of them, judgment from God on the earth. That ends with Armageddon, the Battle of Armageddon we talked about. Just as it appears, the Battle of Armageddon, the nations of the world have Jerusalem surrounded. 
Jesus returns just as Jerusalem is teetering on the brink of collapse, and Jesus returns, demolishes the nations, and sets up a 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ here on the earth. We talked about that the last couple of weeks. Satan is bound, and there is a 1,000-year reign of peace and joy and, and, uh, and blissfulness upon this earth for 1,000 years. Jerusalem's the capital, and it's a reign of Christ, the end of peace for 1,000 years. After the 1,000 years we saw last week, Satan is released. He gathers an army again of those that have not accepted Christ, tries one more last-ditch effort to overthrow Christ. He is demolished immediately by fire, not much of a battle. And then after that, Satan, the false prophet, and the beast, the unholy trinity, are all then thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. And then we close last week in chapter 20, verses 11 to 15, with what's called the great white throne judgment. The final event in God's calendar for this earth, the great white throne judgment, and then heaven and earth fled away. Uh, those that, were, that had not received Christ were banished to the lake of fire, whose ever's name was not found written in the book of life, we're told in verse 15 of Revelation 20, cast in the lake of fire. And so now we have heaven, the new heaven and the new earth described. Sin thoroughly corrupted the old one, the old heaven and the old earth. And now we have a new heaven and new earth that will be uncorrupted by sin. You and I have never known an earth un that's not corrupted by sin. Everything we know about this earth is fallen. Everything we know about this world is fallen, it's cursed. We've never known a heaven and earth that's not cursed. But at that time, we will. So go to letter B now, your outline, and let's begin looking at heaven described. So starting tonight, we turn from Revelation chapter 20 to Revelation chapter 21 and 22 to close out the book. There is a huge difference between where 20 ends and where 21 begins. 20 ends with the judgment, the dead, small and great, standing before God. The books are open. They're not found in the Lamb's Book of Life. They're cast into the lake of fire. And then we immediately open to chapter 21 and it's paradise. So there is a huge difference between 20 ending and 21 opening. We turn the page and we find immediately that we are in the land now of eternity. We're in the everlasting Eden. We are, we are now into paradise. Listen to what the old Scottish preacher, Dr. James Moffat, uh, years ago said about turning from chapter 20 of Revelation to chapter 21. He said, quote, From the smoke and the pain and the heat of Revelation 20, it is now a relief to pass into the clear, clean atmosphere of the eternal morning of Revelation 21, where the breath of heaven is sweet, and the vast city of God sparkles like a diamond in the radiance of His presence. Yes, there is a huge difference between chapter 20 and chapter 21. So now, as Revelation 21 opens, uh, it opens with the creation of a glorious new universe for the redeemed of all ages, never to perish, never to grow old, Never to wear out, 
never to cry, never to have pain. It is paradise from now on, starting in chapter 21 and 22. So now we are moving from the spiritual or the physical realm into the spiritual realm. Now the both of the realms converge. It's the seen and the unseen. Paul talks about it to the Corinthians. He said, we're, we're now living in the, 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 the invisible, but soon that will give way to the visible. So as we approach chapter 21, we're merging the visible and the invisible, the seen and the unseen, the physical and the spiritual, and they will merge into our enjoyment of eternal life forever. And it will begin. So, for the next two chapters, 48 verses, there are many allusions to this passage, these two passages, from the Old Testament. Uh, Ezekiel 40 through 48 is a background, describes the, uh, the, the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, Isaiah chapter 60 and Isaiah chapter 65, both of those record uh, allusions or, or allude to the final new heaven and the new earth. So, you're going to hear some things that may sound familiar if you're familiar with Ezekiel 40 to 48 and Isaiah 60 and 65. So for the next four Wednesday nights, we're going to go slowly through these next two chapters, spend about four weeks covering the final 48 verses of Revelation. And I want to do that because I want us to walk slowly through heaven. We've got a lot of questions about heaven, let's be honest. Uh, We don't know what it's going to be like. We have loved ones there. Some of you have spouses there. Some of you have children there. Um, We have loved ones there. It's our future home. It's my future home. And if you know Jesus tonight, it's your future home. So, So I want us to walk slowly through it and And look around and see what's there and see what we're told in the final 48 verses of of Revelation. Now think about this. It is interesting to me that that God gave us these final 48 verses. He didn't have to. In fact, he could have ended the Bible with chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. He could have ended by saying, great white throne judgment, if if your name's in the book of life, you live forever, and if you're not, you're cast in the lake of fire, and the Bible, boom. And it'd been fine. We would have known clearly everything that we want to know. But he didn't stop there. He gave us two more chapters that doesn't describe hell at all. It does nothing but describes heaven, our future home. And he starts talking about it. He tells us some very interesting things. So if, if he, in his graciousness, saw fit to give us 48 more verses, let's, let's spend a little more time on them. So, how wonderful it is for God to close the book with heaven and a description. So let's begin. Step with me into paradise. Let her see on your outline the new heaven and the new earth. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, 
and the sea was no more. Now, time out. Let's, let's break down what he said. First of all, he said then. So in other words, it's a sequence. So, so it's, it's almost as if John, through the book of Revelation, sees a little more than 60 different videos real fast. Images, clips, I saw this, and then I saw that, and then I saw this, and then I looked over here and I saw that. And it's like video clips, if you will, of about 60 different videos in the entire book. And now he comes to the last one. Then I saw, he says, and he uses that word I saw over and over. He's literally seeing it with his eyes in this vision. And then I saw... A new heaven and a new earth. And remember the old heaven and the old earth. That we mean, what we mean by heaven is the heavens, the atmosphere. The, the uh, uh, Semitics called anything above the earth is the heavens. So it's not talking about capital H heaven as we know of heaven. It's talking about the atmosphere. So he saw our atmosphere and the earth flee away and now he sees a new one. Now, the word new there, uh, kainos, does not mean new in time or recent. It means new in character or new in freshness. So what he saw wasn't a new one just hot off the press. Hey, I just made it. Here it is. It's new in character. It's different than this earth. It's like it, but it's different. It's new in character and new in freshness. Now, how is God going to create the new heavens and the new earth? Well, we're not told, but theologians conjecture. Some believe that he will remold the old earth that has fled away. Uh, remember, it melted down. It, it, with fervent heat, it passed through the heavens with the fervent heat. And, it, and so some people believe it melted down. He's going to recast it similar to our resurrected bodies. That's what some say. Others say it's going to be patterned after this earth, but it's going to be different. And others say that God is going to create out of nothing once again, the Hebrew term ex nihilo, meaning out of nothing. So in Genesis 1, God created the world out of nothing. Nothing existed and he brought it into existence. And so some theologians say he'll do the new heavens and the new earth the same way. Out of nothing that's there, he's going to create a new one. We don't know how he's going to do it, but he's going to create a new one. There will be a new universe. There will be a new cosmos. There will be new intergalactic space. And if our current galaxies are mind-boggling to us, think of the eternal galaxies that are going to make up the new heaven because the galaxies we know are going to be done away with. Imagine how mind-boggling the new eternal galaxies are going to be. And then somewhere in this new, big, beautiful universe... God is going to create a brand new planet Earth. Yes, God will create a new heaven and a new Earth full of flowers and trees and colors and mountains and valleys. A new Earth. 
Now, there are some theologians, I'd say most Bible scholars believe the, the new earth is going to be much larger than this earth, than the one we're on right now. A couple of reasons they believe that. One is because it's going to be home to billions of redeemed people from all ages. And the angels. So it's going to be, in the minds of a lot of people, much larger. But one of the reasons we know it's going to be larger is because what we're going to see in the next chapter, chapter 21, verse 16, John is commanded to measure the new, the new Jerusalem. And so he gets out his measure, and he starts measuring it. And he said, we'll get there, we'll talk more in detail about it, I just want to introduce it now. He, he says, when I measured the new Jerusalem, it measured 12,000 stadia in every direction. 12,000 stadia, 12,000 stadia, this 12,000 stadia up. Every direction, 12,000 stadia is the dimensions of the new Jerusalem. What's a stadia? Well, 12,000 stadia is about what we know as 1,400 miles. So the new Jerusalem, can you imagine 1,400 miles in every direction? From Garland, 1,400 miles that way is Los Angeles. And from Garland, 1,400 miles that way is Philadelphia. That's a massive city. One city. 1,400 miles in every direction. And imagine 1,400 miles up. There are two international space stations right now above the Earth. The U.S. has one called the International Space Station, and China has one. I was, I was looking at it right before I came in here. It's right over Puerto Rico right now. But it's 248 miles up. 248. Can you imagine a city whose spires shoot past the space station for 1,000 miles? It's mind-boggling, isn't it? That's massive. We can't comprehend it. We'll talk more about it whenever we get to the next chapter, verse 16. But it's a large new Jerusalem that he creates. I saw a new heaven, new earth, for the first earth and the first earth had passed away. But notice the last phrase. Fascinating. And the sea was no more. The ocean is gone. What? Is that literal or figurative? We don't know. Remember, one of our principles of interpretation to the book of Revelation has been, if there's no reason not to take it literally, take it literally. It may be literal. But all through Scripture, the sea has represented separation and separated evil. I told you, I've told you before about how the Jews had this intense fear of the ocean, of water, of the sea. They, they, they didn't understand it. It was mysterious to them. They thought, they thought, they didn't know how far the sea went. I mean, they, what, what lives down there? And they thought not even God controlled the sea. And that's why you see Jesus with many miracles of where he has control over, over the sea. 
So the Jews had this fear of the sea, and Psalm 89.9 says the sea opposed God, and Isaiah 57.20 says the sea is the place of the heathen. And if you remember early in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, the beasts came out of the sea. And if you remember chapter 20 last week, verse 13, it was the place of the dead. And here is John on the island of Patmos, separated by the sea from everybody he loves. He is exiled from Ephesus on Patmos, and all you see in every direction is water. The sea represents separation. Those of us who've been to, to Patmos, about every five or six years, we, we, we go as a church to retrace Paul's second missionary journey. About 50 of us will go, and, and we always take a, a, a cruise ship out of Athens, and we sail over to Ephesus, and we stop on the island of Patmos there in, in the Aegean Sea. It's a beautiful location, and we walk up to the top of the mountain where traditionally John was when he received the revelation. And as you look out, in fact, we were there on Sunday on the Lord's Day and had a service there, and as you look out in every direction, all you see is water. You just see the sea. And it represents the separation from the loved ones that John had. He's by himself. And so if, if this is figurative, then he's saying heaven is a place where there's no more separation and no more evil. It's all gone. Separation from loved ones, gone. You're with them. If it's literal, then imagine a new earth with no seas. Right now, our earth, about 70% of it's sea or ocean. We can't imagine a world without seas, without the ocean. It would greatly affect the climate and living conditions. A world without seas would be radically different for us. Now, this doesn't mean that God may not create other enormous and beautiful bodies of water on this new earth. He might. But if it's literal, there will be no more oceans on this new earth. So it's interesting that he says, John, I looked and there was no more sea. In verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. He looks up and he sees a city descending out of heaven from God. Doesn't say it settled on earth. He just said it was descending down toward earth. Now, all the way through the Bible, God's people were looking for a city. Abraham. Hebrews 11.10 says, Abraham was looking for that city whose architect and builder was God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, we're told, the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament saints, they, they, were, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Hebrews 13, 14, for we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for that city that is to come. All through Scripture, God's people have been looking for that heavenly city. John sees it. Here it is. 
Almighty God is the architect. And Almighty God is the builder. What kind of city it must be. It doesn't say the holy city is the new heaven. It just says it's the holy city is a part of the new heaven. A couple things about the city. First of all, the word that's used to describe city here is the word in Greek, polis, P-O-L-I-S. We get the word uh, metropolitan or metropolis from it. The, the P-O-L-I-S in the word metropolis is a Greek word that means city. And so it's a real city, not one that's figurative. And if you remember in John 14, before Jesus was crucified, told his disciples, he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you that where I am, you may be there too. And the word place he uses is the word topos, T-O-P-O-S. It literally means boundary or city limit, what we know of a city limit. Like you come into Garland, you see a sign Garland city limit. It's the word topos. So it's every bit of a real, literal city that we'll be living in. But it's kind of patterned after a city already here on earth. Jerusalem. It's interesting that the heavenly city is patterned after a city we know. It's compared to Jerusalem. Folks, Jerusalem's a special place. We spend five nights there every, every year when we take a group to Israel. And all five nights we're in Jerusalem, you just get the sense this place is different and this place, place is special. This is, this is God's city. Jerusalem, taken by David from the Jebusites initially and became God's city. And there, were always, there was always something special about Jerusalem in Scripture. And there were psalms written about it. And in the millennium, it's going to be the capital of the world. And it's this city that he patterns the new city, larger obviously, after Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. But listen to how he describes it. I saw it coming down out of heaven, beautiful, as beautiful as a bride on her wedding day. Well, we know the bridegroom motif, uh, Jesus in the church. I don't think he's saying that this is the church I see coming down. He just uses that as a metaphor, how beautiful today to describe a bride on her wedding day. John really had a tough job, if you think about it. How do you describe the undescribable? How do you describe heaven? Because the actual glory of how he described it far outweighs the words. How do you describe a sunset? Well, there's this look like a big ball in the sky and it turns orange. That doesn't sound real pretty, does it? But when you experience it, it's beautiful. So he's trying to describe it. And of all the analogies, he uses a bride and a groom. One of the blessings I have as pastor is I get to be here with the groom when the back door is open and the bride walks down the aisle. I love to watch the groom's face. He's like, his face always lights up. Because the, there's, no, there's no ugly bride. Every bride's beautiful. Every hair's in place, flawless, and the makeup's perfect, and everything's perfect. Bride's beautiful. And that's how he described this new city. 
as beautiful as a bride on her wedding day. Go to verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So John had said twice now, I saw, I saw, and now he hears. So all of his senses are engaged. I saw this, and I saw this, and now I hear something from the throne, and it's loud. It's, it's a loud voice. Notice how many times in Revelation he says something, he hears something loud. I don't think of heaven as being loud, do you? But John described it as loud. Heard a loud voice, and the voice boomed out, and it said, Behold! And every time you see the word behold, whether Old Testament or New Testament, it's a word that means stop, pay attention, make your, your perceptions keen because what's coming is really important. Every time you see behold, sharpen your senses, your ears, your eyes. And the voice says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Literally, the tabernacle of God is tabernacling with men. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle represented God's presence among His people. You remember that? They never saw Him. It was only the representation. This tabernacle represents God. And every time we're there, there's a cloud and it's a special place. and There's a special feeling we get, but we never see Him. Now, they see him. They actually get to see him. And he will dwell with them. What a powerful phrase. Folks, you finally get to be with him. All you've experienced your whole life is his presence by faith spiritually. But now, you finally get to be with him. What a powerful phrase. He will dwell with them. That's what Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden before sin. They walked with him in the cool of the day. Listen to what Spurgeon said about this. I don't think, Spurgeon said, the glory of the Garden of Eden lay in its grassy walks or the bows bending with luscious fruit. The glory of the Garden of Eden lay in the fact that the Lord God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. Here was Adam's highest privilege. He had companionship with the Most High every day. And folks, that was lost in the fall. But now, it's back. And it'll be different than the Old Testament tabernacle. God will dwell with his cleansed people. No more sin, perfect fellowship. You see him. You're with him. He's with you. But the word people there is interesting. God will, they will be his people and God will be with them as their God. 
the word people there, you can't tell it in the English, but it's in the plural. It's not singular, it's plural, meaning it's not just the saved Israelites. It's all the saved peoples of the world. And praise God for that because I'm not Jewish. But I can be saved as a Gentile through Christ. So it's peoples, plural, not just people, singular. So I'll get to be with him. So will you if you know Christ. And notice that heaven is not isolation. It's a perfect community. We get frustrated now with people now because we don't get to experience true community. People mess it up. But then heaven is described not as isolation. You're not just going to be by yourself. But it will be a perfect community of believers. God himself will be with us. He will be our God. And we will be his people. And now look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. I find this interesting. Verse 3 gave us the positive benefits of heaven. And verse 4 tells us the negative benefits of heaven. It tells us what heaven does not have. Verse 3 tells us what it does have. And now verse 4 tells us what it does not have. And John listed seven things for us that does not exist in heaven. Seven things you'll not find in heaven. The sea. Death. Mourning, which means sorrow, weeping, pain, night, and the curse. Not there. Now, in the next chapter, we're told six more things that aren't there. There's no temple. Sorry, we're not going to have a church in heaven. Jesus is the temple. No sacrifices there, we're told in the next chapter. No sun, don't need a sun. No moon, don't need a moon. No darkness, and no sin. Wouldn't it be great to live in a place with none of those? Death is hard. Those of you who've lost significant family members, it's hard. And when death interrupts our lives it, it just seems so unwelcome because it is and isn't it going to be great to go to a place death is not even a possibility it's just endless fellowship and endless joy with each other and with our Lord no tears of repentance those are wiped away and the word that's interesting that's used there for wiped away, that God will wipe away the tears from our eyes, it's the same word for wiping away our sins in Scripture. It means to obliterate, remove. I'm not there anymore. There were a lot of tears in the Bible. Mary and Martha cried tears when Lazarus, their brother, died. And the widow of Nain 
cried tears when her son died. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet, and even Jesus himself wept over Jerusalem. And all through the Bible you find tears of persecution and tears of contrition and tears of disappointment and tears of yearning for what we can't have now. But here, here in this place, all tears are gone. One theologian said, quote, man comes into this world with a cry and he leaves with a groan. And everything in between is intoned with wailing. But in heaven, the hallelujahs of the renewed world will drown out the voice of crying forever. Instead of crying, it's hallelujah. You know, this sounds like a reversal of the curse, doesn't it? It is talk more about it in the next chapter chapter 21 but heaven is described as the garden of eden reversed the bible begins with perfect fellowship with god it ends with perfect fellowship with god it begins with the garden it ends with the garden begins with no sin ends with no sin it sounds like eden has been restored talk more about that in chapter 21 But I want you to contrast what you just heard about heaven with the Hindu concept of heaven, for example. Hindus believe heaven is an ocean. God says there's no more ocean. Heaven is an ocean into which human life returns, according to the Hindus, like a raindrop returning to the ocean. Doesn't this sound better? Doesn't this new city sound better? Full of life and activity and community and people and interest and creativity and joy and our creator in the middle of it. Sounds a whole lot better than the Hindu concept of heaven. For the former things have passed away, he said at the end of verse 4. All that was bad about this earth and this earthly life is gone. And now look at verse 5 and we'll close. And he who was seated on the throne said, for the first time, God speaks in the book of Revelation for the first time. He was seated on the throne and said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. Now, for the first time in the book of Revelation, we hear God speak. John turns from a description of the new Jerusalem to a description of what God said. And he said, behold, sharpen your senses. What's coming is important. I am making all things new. Kainos, new in character, new in freshness. God will bring a new creation into existence. I'm making all things new. Don't you long for a place to be where everything is new? You see, 
we live in a world where everything gets old. And it's not made new. Boy, don't we know that with our bodies. Wouldn't it be nice to have new hips and new knees? New spirit. Freshness. Just a place where nothing is old. Everything is new. And the last thing he told John in verse 5, write this down. What I'm telling you is the truth. Why would God say that? Why would God say, write this down, I'm telling you the true words? Probably one of two reasons. Either John got so enthralled and, and awestruck with God speaking that he stopped writing, stopped writing the revelation. And, and God went, start, keep writing. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Or, God knew one day there would be some skeptics. If heaven's really real or not, if Jesus really is the right way to go, if all of this is just pie in the sky, So maybe to combat the skeptics. He said, John, write this down. So they'll have a record what it's like. Maybe. But he told John, write, I'm telling you the truth. Now before we close, I want to give you a comparison between the last of Revelation and the first of Genesis. Think of the difference. Genesis 1, heavens and earth were created. Revelation, new heaven, new earth. Genesis 1, 16, the sun was created. Revelation, we don't need the sun. His brightness, his glory, greater than the sun. Revelation, night was established, Genesis 1-5. Revelation, no night there. Genesis, the seas were created, Genesis 1-10. Revelation, no more sea. Genesis, the curse is pronounced, chapter 3. No more curse, no more death. Genesis 3.19, death enters human history. Revelation, no more death. Genesis 3.24, man is driven from the garden. Genesis, Revelation, man's restored to paradise. In Genesis 3.17, saint, uh, pain and sorrow begin. Revelation, pain and sorrow gone. Folks, if you know Jesus tonight, you have something beautiful and glorious waiting on you. And we've just begun. We're only five verses into the last 48. And already he's given us a beautiful description, a picture of what we're going to get to experience. 
Well, we're out of time. If you have questions or comments afterwards, come up and see me. I'd be glad to answer any questions or hear any comments or send me an email. I'd be glad to hear from you as well concerning our, our study. Let's pray together. We'll dismiss. God, you are such a good God. And I want to thank you that in Christ, we have something new and glorious waiting on us that, that John was just awestruck in writing. And so, Lord, I'm thankful for that. And thank you that, that you've given us a, a, a book where those words were written because they're true and we can study it. So, Father, would you bless our continued study in the weeks to come of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a good week. See you Sunday.